Well, take a few seconds and just think, what is your deepest longing in life? Well, what's your deepest longing uh, in life? And then just turn to your neighbor and uh, just share that uh, with them. I'm teasing. Don't do that. You know, Larry Crabb, uh, in, in his book, The Marriage Builder, uh, he talked about that God has created us in his image. And he's created us as personal beings, unlike other creatures. Uh, and in that sense, we are like him uh, in that we're able to, we, we have this unique capacity for relationship. And as, a, a, as dependent personal beings, we, we even cannot function uh, apart from these kinds of uh, relations, close relationships with other human beings. And he says, he says, I understand the scriptures to teach that relationships offer two elements that are absolutely essential if we're to live as God intended. So here he's going to give us his view of what our two deepest longings are as human beings. Here's what he says. Number one, the security of being truly loved and accepted. And number two, the significance of making a substantial, lasting, positive impact on another person. So he distills all of the needs and longings that we might have down to those two. A need for uh, the security of love that is unconditional and the significance uh, or the, 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 the role of playing a significant part in another person's life. So security and significance. And I think all of us, at some level, seek after those things. All of us are on this search for an identity uh, that would cause us to feel secure love and significant purpose. And that that longing leads us to do some pretty crazy things, doesn't it? Uh, maybe you're a people pleaser in this room. And, and so that longing for a secure love and a significant purpose kind of causes you to look to other people uh, to, to, to do things that would please them or, or make them happy. Uh, or maybe you're caught in what has been called the approval trap, where everything you do, you do in order to gain the approval to try to pull out of someone else that secure love or significant purpose that you're looking for. See, it causes us to do all kinds of crazy things. And, you know, if you look back on your life, maybe you can see the detrimental effects of that kind of a longing, that kind of a search, uh, as you've looked to other people. M maybe you don't see how powerful those needs are uh, in your life, but those are driving forces for us. Secure love and significant purpose. Well, in our text today, we kind of got the background last week from Leon on this rather peculiar family. Uh, it's quite a story, seven years of labor and then kind of a, a deceptive switch, you know, at the last moment. So two marriages and then seven more years of labor. 
And what we're going to look at today probably takes place within that second set of, of seven years uh, where Jacob has just married Rachel. And so we're going to see we're going to see 12 kids born uh, in a seven-year period. Uh, that's a lot, right? Um, there's lots of parallels here, too, if you look at the story closely with the lives of the other uh, patriarchs. Uh, what we don't see here, just as an observation before we look at it a little more closely, what we don't see here is Jacob praying for his wife Rachel and her barrenness, the way we saw the other two patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, pray for their wives. We don't see Jacob doing much of anything uh, in this story except fathering children. Uh, he's kind of absent, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, and, and look, okay, so, so now is probably as good a time as any for just a note on polygamy. All right, and the fact that we see it in the scripture. So I'm going to bracket this off. This is a note bene, note well, uh, just an aside. Uh, but let's think about this for just a, a few minutes. And Leon did a great job last week of, of explaining the difference between things that we see in scripture that are prescriptive, that is, things that God calls us to do, commands us to do, and things that are descriptive. So in the narrative sections of Scripture, we see a lot of descriptive things. And certainly, as you have looked through the Old Testament, you see uh, some instances of polygamy uh, in the Old Testament. And so this is descriptive of this family. Uh, so so the, the author of the text is explaining and describing what this family was like. Uh, here, a little bit later, we're introduced to Bilhah and Zilpah, and they are called wives, even though they function more like concubines. But concubines in that day were considered wives. They were just second-tier wives. So they had certain rights, and the husband had obligations to them, but not to the same degree they had to an actual wife. So we'll see four wives in this particular uh, story today. And there, there's debate whether polygamy is ever explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament. The closest thing that we have to prohibition is in Leviticus 18, in verse 18, where God explicitly says, you, you, you shall not marry a wife and her sister. Now, Again, the reason there's debate is because you ask the question, well, does he mean just, is he prohibiting marrying sisters? Uh, I happen to think that it extends to any other woman because of the way the term sister is used uh, in other parts of the Old Testament. But there is debate on that. Is it just don't marry another sister or another woman, period, right? Uh, the other place you see uh, a text on polygamy is in Deuteronomy 17, uh, as God warns kings not to pursue other wives. So in the same way, a king shouldn't rely on horses, on military prowess. He should rely on the Lord. In the same way, a king shouldn't enter into multiple politically uh, uh, beneficial marriages uh, in order to solidify his position uh, through the marriage, you know, through marrying uh, other women of other kingdoms. OK, 
okay? So it's a warning to kings not to do this. And the, the warning is, lest your heart be turned away from the Lord. As you're relying on these other things, your heart will be turned away from the Lord. So two places where the subject is, is broached uh, outside of just examples that we, that we see. So there's a warning there. Uh, in, in the book of Judges, we see uh, a few instances of polygamy among the wealthy. Uh, these were elites or, or people that desired to be rulers. And uh, frankly, they were, they were the only ones that could afford multiple wives. Okay, so we see that in, uh, in some of their lives as well. But don't forget, in Judges, there's not many people that are worth emulating. Uh, in the book of Judges, okay? So even though we see the description of this in Judges, there's not much about these people that we would want to emulate, and certainly not uh, that aspect of it. In the monarchy, uh, we see polygamy leading to all kinds of trouble. Uh, It wrecks uh, Solomon. It drives him away uh, from the Lord by the the end of his life. And David, who is called a a man after God's own heart, uh, is called that in spite of what he does in this particular uh, area. There's some evidence that perhaps David reverted from that and came back to monogamy at the end of his life. But again, that's, uh, that's up for debate. But here's the point. In the Old Testament, we only see polygamy among a few kind of ultra elite people. There's only 33 instances where we see polygamy out of about 3,000 men that are mentioned in the Old Testament. That This was not something that was practiced uh, in general society uh, in Israel. And by the first century uh, AD, it had largely vanished. You don't see it much at all in the first century uh, among Jews. Uh, and it falls short of God's ideal. Again, I think it seems to be forbidden Uh, in the law in Leviticus. And we can definitely say that God never shows approval of polygamy uh, among what we see, among the people in whom we see it in the Old Testament. It represents a departure uh, from what God introduced in the beginning in Genesis with one man and one woman. And listen, it certainly uh, if the scriptures bear anything out in the Old Testament, it certainly ends badly. It creates all kinds of problems. Now, in the New Testament, it's pretty clear. The practice, uh, or or, again, the practice had died out in first century Judaism. Jesus, when he addresses marriage, he goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he points to one man and one woman as the ideal uh, of what marriage is. Uh, Paul assumes two people in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, In his requirements for elders within the church, it's one man, one woman. Uh, And again, keep in mind that those requirements for elders are actually standards of belief or standards of maturity for all believers. Uh, So that becomes the the, the pattern, one man, one woman. And finally, there's just the theological picture that marriage paints of Christ and his bride. Uh, Jesus doesn't have another wife. He has the church. And in the same way, there's one man and there's one woman. So there isn't a question in the New Covenant era, era that com- polygamy is, is wrong. And yet again, 
We see it in the patriarchs. We see it in the Old Testament practice. But if this story in Genesis 29 and 30 tells us uh, anything, it shows us that polygamy creates an unhealthy competition among these women. Uh, it, it creates uh, an extreme dysfunction in this early family that carries on as repercussions out uh, through the centuries uh, even. Uh, I read one comment as I was thinking about this and looking at this. I read one comment uh, from a guy. He said, uh, why would a man want more than one mother-in-law? <laughs> yeah, so you I mean you see all kinds of problems uh, and we'll see that today uh, as we look at this. What we see as we look at these women, particularly in this story today, is the, the really sad tone of unmet expectation uh, as a result of, uh, of, of this family structure. It, it creates winners and losers. Uh, it, it causes uh, desperately hurt feelings and it leads to ma a manipulation, uh, frankly, where uh, you know, e even down to uh, even down to the level of of scheduling who gets to sleep with whom, uh, and and at what times. So it creates all kinds of trouble, and what you end up seeing is an unloved woman and an unfulfilled woman desperately seeking what they cannot find. It's tragic. These ladies are walking down a, a, a dead end street. And so we look at this and we think, okay, will they ever find uh, a hero? Will they ever find someone who can give them what they are looking for? And I want to show you just a couple of, I want to show you two things from this text that I, I hope that we can find comfort in our own search for security uh, and significance as we look at these. And here they are, I'll just give them to you up front. God sees... What others don't. And God does what others can't. God sees what others don't. And God does what others can't. So let's think about our text. Let's think about these ladies. Despite what they have, they are, uh, each of them are dissatisfied with what they have. And they desperately long for what the other has. I don't know if you picked up on that. Leah desperately wants the love of her husband and Rachel desperately wants the significance of motherhood and we see Leah's desperation for affection throughout the story look at verse 31 of chapter 29 it's explicit when the Lord saw that Leah was hated he opened her womb she wasn't wanted from the very beginning uh, remember from last week, she is, in one sense, her marriage is the product of a great hoax, uh, a great deception. And now she is, the text says, hated. Uh, it's, it's probably more unloved, right? She is, uh, she's in second place of a two-person race, right? So she, she's in last place. She's unloved uh, in the story. And it leads her to despair. I mean, you can see in the narrative that she desperately hopes that giving Jacob's sons will somehow cause him to see her and to give her the love that she so desperately craves. 
I mean, just consider for a moment the names that she gives these sons as they're born. The first son is named Reuben, which means the Lord has seen my misery. It also could mean maybe my husband will love me. Let me talk about passive aggressive, but, but like names meant something. So just imagine every time she calls Reuben to the table, she says, maybe my husband will love me. Come and eat. It's time for dinner. Maybe my husband will love me. Take out the rubbish. Okay. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a cry in the naming of this boy. Uh, it's a cry that Jacob would, would love her. Simeon. The Lord has heard that I am hated. Again, do you hear the desperation even in the naming of this son? The Lord has heard that I am hated. Or Levi, my husband will be drawn to me. Again, my husband will be drawn to me. Go call your brothers in from the field. Do you hear the desperation even in the naming of these kids that this woman and finally, the, the, the fourth son is named Judah, which is interesting. Judah means I will praise the Lord. Notice there's nothing about husbands. So there's one of two possibilities. Either Jacob has finally come around and now loves Leah, or Leah has just resigned herself to the fact that Jacob will never love me. Do you hear the desperation? She feels this lack of love and affection from her husband. And it drives her to despair. Or think about Rachel. We see Rachel's desperation for cultural significance in her longing for children. Again, verse 31 makes it explicit. Uh, when the Lord saw Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Rachel was barren. And again, that was a cultural mark of shame. Uh, it was a mark of shame in that culture to not bear children. Uh, you can see at the end of the text in chapter 30, uh, verse 22. No, sorry, verse 23. She says, uh, God has taken away my reproach. The, he has taken away my shame. There's a cultural shame in not being able to bear children. And so she desperately longs for the significance of having children. And it leads her to uh, all kinds of things. It leads her to envy. She envies Leah. Uh, she is angry at Jacob. Uh, she is, uh, she's loved by Jacob, but she feels entirely insignificant as she watches Leah reproduce over and over and over again. It leads her to manipulate things as she seems to, to control uh, who sleeps with whom or where people sleep. And she manipulates things in order to, uh, to, to, to try to uh, conceive and, and have a, a child. She becomes desperate uh, in that she's led then to the use of, of surrogate women. So you can see in, in verses 3 to 8, uh, she says, Here is my servant Bilhah, 
go into her. So she gives Bilhah as a wife to, to Jacob. And uh, Bilhah has two kids, two sons, which legally would be Rachel's sons. It's kind of a surrogate kind of relationship there. Uh, and Leah sees that, and she gets in on it as well and says, well, if you can do that, I can do that too. So she gives Jacob Zilpah uh, as a wife, and she bears two sons. And then in verses 14 through 21, you have this incident of, of mandrakes. Mandrakes were felt to be an aphrodisiac. They were felt to induce fertility. And so again, Rachel, in her desperation, uh, finds Reuben, who's who's gone out and found these mandrakes and wants to buy them from him. And so well, Leah says, well, the cost is Jacob, right? And uh, so Jacob uh, sleeps with Leah, and Leah's going to have uh, three more kids uh, there. Incidentally, there's one daughter named Dinah, and uh, the, I think the text mentions Dinah because it's going to come back to her uh, in a little bit. So this is where Dinah com- comes from. So everything's kind of degraded uh, into this bartering for, for bedtime and, you know, who gets to, who gets to sleep with, with whom. And the problem is their search is futile because no human can give them what they ultimately desire. Jacob certainly can't do it. Jacob is inept uh, in this story. Um, virtually he's nothing more than a stud, you know, impregnating women. That's what he's uh, reduced to uh, in this text. He only speaks once uh, in verse 2. Rachel confronts him and says, Give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger is kindled against Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Probably not the best thing to say if your wife is struggling with infertility. Uh, and yet he says it. He's, he's inept, and, and that's all he says. Uh, he's yelled that three times in the text uh, related to, hey, give me kids, give me kids, give me kids. But other than that, he's absent. Unlike Abraham and Isaac, we're not told that he ever prays for his wife. We're not told that he ever prays and asks God to open the womb of Rachel. And regardless of how Leah came to be his wife, he's really not very kind in the way that he treats her. But God, in the text, is the one who sees Leah. And God is the one who responds to Rachel and her prayers. And in doing that, he proves himself gracious in even the most difficult of situations. See, hidden within the story, perhaps, is this idea that God is the hero of the story. God is the one who sees and hears Leah's and Rachel's desperate cries and who responds to them in grace. Again, look back at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he responded. He opened her womb. He shows grace to Leah when he sees that she's unloved. 
He shows grace to Rachel in chapter 30, uh, in verse 6. Rachel said, God has judged me uh, and has also heard my voice. Rachel is crying out to God to open her womb. We see it down in verse 22 where he says, uh, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her. She's crying out to God and God hears her. He hears her prayers for a child and he opens her womb. And she's able to conceive. And notice that this, uh, th- this, these gracious acts of God in opening the wombs of these women uh, frames the story. Verse 31 and then verse 24 uh, both include God responding to these women, seeing and hearing them, and responding to them in grace by giving them children. So God is the hero here. God is the one that's able to do for these women what no human being, certainly not Jacob, is able to do for them. God is able to show them this secure love, and he is able to make them significant uh, in in the bearing of children. And listen, Rachel and Leah aren't anomalies in terms of, of desperately seeking secure love and a significant purpose. In that, they're just like us, because we seek the same thing. And so I say to you, God sees you. God sees you, and God hears your desperate cries. He sees you when others don't. And He is able to do for you what others can't. And listen, that is everything that you need. That's everything that we need. I'll say it more strongly. Uh, Only God can satisfy your deepest longings for security and significance. Only God can. See, all of us are created with a, 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 this desperate longing to, to feel a secure love and a significant purpose. It's built into our DNA to want to be loved and then to matter for something that's bigger than we are. It's built into us. Uh, in fact, it's built into us because we were created as image bearers. We were created and designed to experience God's ultimate love and to be about His grand purpose within His creation. And so in the garden, God walks intimately with Adam and Eve, loving them without restriction, uh, loving them securely and perfectly. And He gives them this mandate to, to represent Him in all of creation, to represent the King and the Creator of all things. Can there be a, a bigger purpose than that? There's no greater love and no greater purpose. And we, in our fallen state, we look anywhere and everywhere in order to see that need fulfilled. To come to some understanding of who we are and who will love us. 
as created beings, uh, Richard Lentz reminds us that we are created with a kind of, he calls it a reflective identity. We don't find our identity within ourselves. We were created to find our identity in the Creator, from outside, the, the one who is outside of us. And what happens tragically is we look to other things, things within creation, to fill those needs and to find that identity. And so we begin to reflect those idols, those other things that we look to. And yet, the futility and the tragedy is that we cannot derive a true sense of security and significance outside of the Creator. All of our attempts ultimately fail because we were designed to find that in God. I told you a few weeks ago about my dog, Bella. Uh, every day, white delivery van comes uh, down our road. And every day, Bella thinks, I got to get rid of this van. And so she screams and barks and chases and all of that. And you know, the van drives off. And so Bella thinks, I've done it. I got rid of that guy. But what happens? The next day, the van comes back again. And Bella's got to do it all over again. And the van leaves and she goes, yes, I did it. I fulfilled my purpose. But it comes back the next day. See, it's futile. It's futile. I don't know if you know the name Tom Brady. Tom Brady's one of the greatest quarterbacks uh, in American football history. He's won like seven world championships. I don't know, something like that. But after he had won his third Super Bowl, someone interviewed him. And uh, he's at the top of the sport. He's won, you know, three Super Bowls, three world championships. And they asked him, how does it feel? You know, you're at the top of your game. You've achieved everything there is to achieve. How does it feel? And the interviewer said, I was surprised to hear this from him. Here's what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is, this, this is the ultimate. I reached my goal, my dream. But I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And the interviewer said, what's the answer then? And he said, I wish I knew. <laughs> Do you see? The futility of us going and looking to other things to do for us what only the Creator can do. It's tragic. And that's what we see in this story. Our search ends in disappointment and despair because we were made to find our identity in the one who created us. See, God is the only one who can deliver us from this fruitless search. And he's done it. He's done it in Jesus. Jesus redeems in us all that we were meant to experience as the Imago Dei, the image of God. So we are loved with a secure and perfect love in Jesus. And so we can rest. 
Nothing can make us more lovable or loved than the love that we experience in Him. Now one day we'll, we'll realize that perfectly in the eternal state as we dwell with God, enjoying that all-satisfying love forever and ever and ever. But maybe you're wrestling with that today. Maybe you find yourself even now searching in other things for a love that will never disappoint you and never let you down. Can I just tell you what you already know? And that is that you won't find it in anything that's created. You'll only find it as you seek it in the Lord Jesus. Because that's where God gives us what we ultimately seek. A secure love. And we're called to and given an eternal significance in Jesus. In Jesus, we, we can labor. Uh, in everything that we do, we can labor with a sense of meaning and purpose because we realize that God wants to use us in His grand plan. To point people to him that may, they might experience what we've experienced. And so maybe that's where you are today. You know, looking for significance in my job or my relationship with this person. Or, or looking for significance in how much money I might have or the kind of car that I drive. Whatever it might be. Again, I'll tell you what you already know. It's not enough. Because only God can give us that purpose that makes an eternal impact. So the question we're left with is, do we believe that enough to forsake the counterfeits and to, if I can say it this way, put all of our eggs into one basket? To turn all of our searching to Christ? And to accept what he's offered in Jesus. God is gracious enough to work in us and through us. In spite of those futile searches to find fulfillment. And that's what we see here. That amidst the dysfunctions of this family. God still graciously works. So God is big when we fall short. So. God sees what others don't. And He does what others can't. He sees in you what others don't. He, he declares us valuable as objects of love. And He won't reject us in Jesus. And we are eternally significant as He uses us to accomplish His purpose. I just want to conclude with one more quote from Larry Crabb, and I think this is important just as we close. He says, to avoid misunderstanding, let me state that we do not need to feel secure or significant in order to function as we should. I may not feel secure or significant. I may not feel worthy or accepted. But I am still responsible to believe 
that in Jesus I am secure and accepted. Do you see? And maybe today that's you. Maybe you're looking desperately like Leah or Rachel for security or significance. And maybe you're looking in all kinds of different places for it. And the reason that you're looking is because you don't feel secure or significant. What God offers you is a call to take a step of faith and to trust that in Jesus you are secure and loved perfectly and you are significant in his purpose. Whether you feel it or not, Scripture says that's true about you. God sees what others don't, and he does what others can't. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and we recognize, Father, that though you have created us to find our all, our everything in you, we recognize that it's so easy for us to look in a thousand different places. And our experience tells us, Father, even as Augustine said, that our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Father, we know that intuitively. We know that through experience. Would you help us to turn to Jesus and to find that perfect love that we so desperately desire to find that eternal significance that you so graciously provide. We thank you for who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.